Happy New Year's to everybody. Uh, I, uh, Emmy said to me this morning, maybe uh, everyone should turn to each other and, and uh, give each other a big uh, pinch and a punch. But maybe, uh, maybe leave that to part way through the sermon if you start to doze off. Um, all right. As uh, Pete just said then, uh, the next three weeks we're going to be cracking into the book of Ecclesiastes. And what a, what a way to crack into a new year. Uh, if you are well aware of the book. But I'm not going to assume that we are really, really aware of the book. So today, um, my goal is to introduce Ecclesiastes so that you can see its central message. And I hope that over the next couple of weeks, um, as uh, we dive a little bit deeper into some specific parts of it, uh, you might be able to see why, of all books in the Bible, the elders have chosen for us to look at Ecclesiastes to kick off the new year. I will make note of this um, before we dig in. Uh, if you're not super familiar with Ecclesiastes, um, this book might try to draw you this morning to a place that you don't necessarily want to go, at least for a time. Um, but I hope you can stay with me um, so that you can see that the beauty and goodness that it brings is really worthwhile. And for others of you who whether or not you're super aware of what's in Ecclesiastes or you've just lived a while, um, this might just be a breath of fresh air. I feel like God is gloriously talking straight to how you might even be feeling today. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we need you more than anything. Uh, sometimes we don't think that is true. Help us to believe that and live in light of that today. Be gracious to us this morning. Help me to speak. Help me to say things maybe that aren't written down in front of me, if it's what you want to be said. Lord, may your word be supreme and delighted in this morning, that you can be delighted in because of it. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. All right, so uh, flip or tap with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'll give you a sec to get there. It's kind of in the middle-ish of the Bible. Just after Proverbs, before Song of Songs. Make sure you flip there. We are going to be looking um, primarily at chapter 1. Um, and we'll go from there. So, all right. Verse 1. Let's read verse 1. Ecclesiastes. The words of the teacher... Son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay, stop there. Now, first things first, we're introduced to who we're about to hear from. The teacher, king in Jerusalem after King David. Verse 16 of chapter 1 says that this teacher or preacher, as some translations put it, uh, had increased in wisdom above any of the rulers in Jerusalem before him. So it makes sense that tradition says that this... Uh, this teacher is probably Solomon, yet there are some literary reasons there to think maybe it could be someone after him. We don't really know. The good news is it doesn't actually matter whether these are certainly Solomon's words. What is important is we have the reflections and warnings of someone who has made their life's goal to experience everything life on earth here has to offer. Okay, so with that in mind... What actually is the teacher's central message? This man who has experienced everything, what can he teach us? 
What can we gain in wisdom? All right, let's read verse 2. Pete jumped the gun with that one. Well done. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, raise your hand this morning if you came on this fine New Year's Day to be told that everything is meaningless. (laughs) No, good. Uh, (laughs) That's not good news, right? There's kind of no other way of saying it. Um, And seemingly worse is that it is the most repeated phrase in Ecclesiastes. Flip with me to the end of chapter 12, right at the end. Or scroll, whatever you do. Let's read verse 8 to 10. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. So he writes upright and true things, and at the end of the book, not only the first thing he's saying, the end is meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Well, verse 8 there is the last time that we hear from the teacher. Verse 9 onwards of chapter 12 seems to be a summary of his lessons by whoever compiled his teachings for us. So straight away, this book is not what we naturally come to expect from God's Word. I mean, there are so many places, we could all find places, where it starts out with the bad news, but it it ends in glory. I mean, Romans 8 even, it ends in glory. But the teacher here starts and ends seemingly in the same way, this kind of nihilist, despairing kind of way. That's what it seems. But the best thing to do here is make sure we understand what the words mean. Meaningless, what does it mean? It's used over 40 times, or about 40 times. Some Bibles might translate it vanity. Has anyone got a different word other than meaningless or vanity? Futile. Okay, so what is the word? Well, to do that, I'm going to do something that could end this sermon really quick, because there's a smoke alarm probably right there. I do have permission, by the way. It's just I'm going to move somewhere where it's less, less likely to set everything on fire. Yes, I'm going to light a fire in church. And it's not incense. It's a, about a third of a tissue. <laughs> there is a point, by the way. I haven't just lost the plot. Uh, meaningless. Me- useless. I should have brought something other than matches. Let's try that again. I'm going right in front of the aircon. Okay. Now, with the lighting we have here, this might not be... Okay. That there. What is that? Smoke. Now, is... I'm probably going to get rid of that. Should I take it somewhere? What... That is actually what the word is meaning. Alan, could you take it from us? I'm getting slightly scared. (laughs) Thank you. Anyway, let's look at it. So, is smoke a real thing? It's really there, right? 
But you can't get it. It's really there. So maybe meaningless isn't the... It's, it's a good sense of a part of the word, but it's not the fullness of the word. The word hevel. Vanity kind of gets there. Vanity and vanishing have the same root word, Latin vanus. And it means disappearing. It, it goes. You can't get it. In the same way that smoke has kind of two functions in that way, you, you can see it, and it's really there, and it's really of value, but just when you think you've... You can't. It's not. And even if it really was there, and you're in a room full of it, I mean, no one wants that, right? It's, it's like an enigma. It disorients everything. So it's either there and it's tangible and you feel you can get it, but you can't, or there's too much of it that it messes up everything around you. That is what the word's meaning. The teacher is saying, Hevel, Hevel, everything is Hevel. Now, to us as Christians, that still seems weird and wrong, right? Um, so let's, let's kind of have a little bit of a look at what sense he is meaning by that. So flip back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we'll go from verse 3. That's where we stopped. We'll read from verse 3 to verse 10. What does man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Okay, verse 9 there I think is a key, is a key summarising phrase. If you look at verse 9, there is nothing new under the sun. We can see, though, that the type of wording used is the teacher is not saying that there literally is nothing new in the sense of an invention or a way of doing things. No, Solomon didn't have 5G hooked up in the temple. What the, te what the teacher is doing is zooming right out and reflecting on the reality that physical life here on Earth, under the sun, is in a state of constant, unceasing repetition. What goes around comes around. Yes, we make new things, but they are never able to do something. Uh, they are only ever able to do something we've already done in a different way. Phones and internet, for example, can help transfer communication or information differently to how we did it in the past, but they cannot make us 
have good communication or stop hurting one another with our communication. They cannot do the thing that we really long for. So there is nothing new in an ultimate sense. Since the first generation came and went, no generation, no matter how hard we try, has been able to break free from the repetitions of life here under the sun, work and death included, and taxes. And the teacher observes that the natural earth itself likewise seems to be never satisfied by its works, just like us. Rivers keep pouring into the sea, but the sea is never filled. Seemingly new ideas and experiences pour into our hearts and minds through our senses, but our hearts and minds are never filled. All that is wearisome to us, who find we have desires that seemingly cannot be satisfied by where we find ourselves here on earth. So for us, who are currently stuck on the earth, and are hoping 2023 will bring some relief from the difficulty and confusion that you may be experiencing, that seems like a really bleak outlook to confront. But the beauty of Ecclesiastes is that God doesn't want us to just mentally agree with something and then kind of move on to the good news straight away. The teacher keeps pulling the floor out from underneath us until it hurts. Until it changes us. So, let's read verse 11. There is no remembrance, this is verse 11 of chapter 1, there is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Uh, Yeah, so just remember that after all that striving to be satisfied in your life under the sun, you'll die and no one will remember you. To the teacher, I find myself constantly saying, but... Yeah, hang on. I mean, I'm a school teacher and I teach the next generation things that people did. Surely those people are remembered. But when we read of someone in the past, are they really being remembered? Or is it just the public contribution that affects me that we're remembering? The reality is that we, as relational beings, are forgotten on a personal level not long after our deaths. As the old pastor's adage goes, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Let's test the teacher's idea. Put your hand up if you can tell me the names of your great-great-grandparents. Yes, very depressing. And uh, that is probably about how many of our great-great-grandchildren will be able to remember us. See, if we keep this earthly life under the sun in view and stare death in the eyes long enough, you might even start to uh, agree with the teacher. So where to next? Where does the teacher go next? Let's have a look. A natural response for a person who has become weary at all of these big-scale patterns that are out of our control is to begin to try and find some control and satisfaction within some things in this big, uncontrollable life under the sun. The first place the teacher considers might be odd to us. He doesn't start with pleasure or wealth. Rather, he starts with something we probably would turn to after that in our Aussie culture. Knowledge itself. Wisdom. Surely, the teacher thinks, there is some satisfaction and rest for a person in coming to know why 
the world is the way it is, even if it doesn't go the way we want it to go. So what does the teacher say about this? Let's have a look. Verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all things that are done under sun, and all of them are meaningless, are chasing, this, chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look... I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom. Talk about metacognition. And also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Author David Gibson summarises this section brilliantly, pointing out that when a person spends their whole life trying uh, to understand everything that he can in life, he learns so much and yet his, art, his heart aches like a man who knows nothing at all. Not only can we not understand as much of life under the sun as we'd like to, knowing it doesn't satisfy us anyway, In the same way an iPhone cannot make good relationships with others, wisdom and knowledge cannot satisfy the longings of the heart. In some senses, it only proves to make us more aware of the grief and and exhaust another road to satisfaction. And this is the pattern of Ecclesiastes. The teacher slowly exposes the hevel, the smoke of life under the sun, for all people, both the believer and the non-believer, This is something we all taste to varying degrees and in various ways. Let's look at some other sections. Chapter 3, the start of that. You can flick to that yourself. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Chapter 3 contains beautiful poetry about the relational seasons of life that are outside of our control and come and go kind of seemingly as they please. We ultimately don't know what this year will be for us, as Pete's already said. He also reminds us of another specific type of hevel in this world. This hevel doesn't just refer to a smoke or an enigma, but also an an evil, something that's twisted from our sense of righteousness. Let's read chapter 3, verse 16. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice... Wickedness was there. And in a more poetic way of putting it, let's look at chapter 9, verse 11 to 12. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favour to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Of course, this seems to clash with Proverbs, where you do something and something good should happen. But it, it doesn't. Proverbs suggests that, generally speaking, the race does go to the swift. 
I mean, that's why we train. And food goes to the wise. The farmer that uh, is careful and wise, they end up producing the food. But the teacher recognises there's a glitch in this system under the sun. Proverbs is not the way it always plays out. God is righteous and his world does operate by it. Though in giving us freedom, he has permitted humanity to continue in our unrighteousness until the allotted time and he brings history to a close. By acknowledging these hevels of life under the sun, the teacher is not being a nihilist. A nihilist does... has no reason to be disturbed by the unrighteousness of the world as someone like you or I do. Consider chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. Let's look there. We'd probably all agree that this is one of the most difficult things in this life. Again I looked and I saw the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. I don't know what you're thinking or feeling right now, but the first time you really savour these passages, you might be quite speechless. The teacher has faced the unrighteousness of the world with blinkers on for so long that, as you read on further, he even despairs of life itself. So, summary. What have we learned so far from the teacher? Life under the sun is hevel. It's a smoke. Because you can't attain the satisfaction that you want from it. We are so insignificant in the happenings of the world, we cannot ultimately produce any surplus or gain at the end of a year We're never satisfied in our toil. We can never understand enough to satisfy our desire to know. Oftentimes, life and the events of life seem to be unfair and occur at all the wrong times. And right when we think we're getting somewhere, we die and are forgotten. He goes in and talks about other things as well, which uh, we'll look at in the coming weeks. But in short, the teacher has tried it all. And nothing under the sun is able to truly satisfy So, at this point, we might think that there has to be a huge turn. There's a huge turn somewhere in this book that makes it harmonise, the message of Ecclesiastes harmonise with what we know to be true from the whole narrative of Scripture, that yes, there is a bad news, but God is good and there is a really, really good news. We know that to be true. Does there have to be something here to say, oh, everything I've been saying here is wrong. or Well, let's find out. I don't think there is. I believe Ecclesiastes is the way it is on purpose, to achieve something that the more positive views of life uh, can't. An important key to gaining from Ecclesiastes what the teacher intends is understanding the phrase, life under the sun. Notice how all of these despairing comments are all connected to that phrase, life under the sun. This is believed to be a Hebrew phrase which is referring to viewing life as a closed system. Life under the sun. 
This is believed to be thinking about uh, just our perspective, not God's heavenly perspective or above-the-sun perspective on life. Some have said that the teacher has actually turned from his faith in God, but it doesn't really make sense when the teacher still refers to God and his gifts throughout the book. He's primarily wanting to spend his time warning us of the hevel that is centering our life and our view of life in an under-the-sun kind of way. He's saying, don't let your heart be duped to feel like you can be satisfied by a life lived from an under-the-sun perspective. Because it's all hevel, and all it will do is slip from your hands and leave burn marks. So without Ecclesiastes spending much time actually talking about the alternative, what is the alternative? Though chapter 1, which we have focused on, sets the scene, and the vast majority of the book flows in a similar kind of negative tone, there are actually little kind of proverbs-like sayings all throughout. For example, five times, kind of in different ways, the teacher says this. Let's look. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12 to 13. Actually, let's go back. Let's go verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good as long as they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all this toil, this is the gift of God. Now, as uh, Pete mentioned at the start, this saying has often stumped commentators on Ecclesiastes pretty big time, uh, because it kind of sounds very, very similar to a, a bunch of times throughout the Scripture where that specific kind of saying and thinking is, is clearly being said this is wrong. Right? We've got uh, 1 Corinthians 15.32 where we've got people thinking that, okay, if there's no resurrection to eternal life, then just eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And then we've also got that kind of dodgy, short-sighted view in Luke chapter 12.19 with the uh, rich fool who thinks his worldly goods can save him. You know, I'll just, surely I'll be satisfied. But this isn't what the teacher means in Ecclesiastes. Hear this. The sceptic says, eat, drink and be merry, because that's all there is in life. But the teacher says, in godly wisdom, that eat, drink and enjoy, because what there really is in this life, in this short life that you have here on earth. The message of Ecclesiastes is both direct and implied. It is implied that we should view day-to-day life from a much bigger view than just under the sun. Sin has always been about thinking God is holding out on us and that we can make life apart from him work better than, better on our own. That's why we ate the fruit. Ecclesiastes is dark 
because it plunges into whether this kind of thinking and living can actually get us anywhere now that we are outside of Eden and gloriously shows us that once and for all, we can't. It's also implicit that if you're here and you haven't been restored to relationship with God through trusting in his plan for salvation in Christ Jesus, the teacher says the hard reality that a life apart from this hope is ultimately hevel. Smoke. Please look to Jesus. This is why we're called Restoration Church, because we believe we have no other hope than the restoration that Jesus brings to those who trust him both after our death and while we still live here under the sun. Yet this is the very reason why Ecclesiastes can make us feel so uncomfortable. Its teaching acts like goads, it says in chapter 12, which is a really, really sharp stick that shepherds you to prod people back into line. We need to be constantly and lovingly prodded to hold on to our earthly plans a little more loosely. And stop chasing our satisfaction in the day when things will be better in our life under the sun. I, I kind of feel like that a little bit sometimes with young kids at the moment. The amount of times that I think, oh man, it's going to be so much better when. <laughs> but will I have the when? Do I know that for sure? In doing that, we fail to deeply enjoy what God has given us now and are short-sighted to the reality that God could bring us home five minutes from now. Jesus, please, by your Spirit, restore us to delight in our relationship with the Father above all else like you do. That all our expectations, these huge expectations in our heart for eternal life, right knowledge, justice, perfect pleasure... All of these things might be fulfilled in the right time once we pass into glory that you've prepared for us. But Jesus, please also make us more like you while we are still under the sun. Think about it. Jesus humbles himself and comes and lives an earthly life filled with more heaven than any of us could ever imagine. Think about the crucifixion. Is there a more heaven kind of moment in human history? Yet he loves better and lives in the moment so much better than we could ever do. On this earth, Jesus always seemed to be enjoying a meal or serving someone with such a glad heart amidst the unrighteousness of this broken world. He's disturbed, yet undisturbed by the brokenness around him. He trusted God's perfect judgment and plan so perfectly that he could just enjoy the gifts for what they are knowing that this is not his or our ultimate satisfying end. So Ecclesiastes is not teaching us that the Christian life is meaningless. Just don't expect to make heaven out of 2023. Just like Jesus wasn't expecting his life on earth to be heaven either. But while we are under the sun, let's be deeply grateful for the little glimpses of our heavenly home that God does give us each day and pursue to faithfully obey him so that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, where he calls us home. So the sun's out. It actually has a comment at the end of Ecclesiastes about enjoying the sun on your face and enjoying a drink. Let's do that soon. But let's finish with chapter 12, verse 13 to 14. We'll finish with how the book ends. Chapter 12, 
verses 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed, every unrighteousness, everything into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, grant us the serenity to accept the things that we cannot change, um, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. As your people, help us to have such humble trust in you, knowing your big plan for all time, that this is not our ultimate home, but you've got great work for us to do and there are great joys in this time that we have under the sun together. Help us be, help us take every moment now as we just, as we worship you and as we go and we chat and we enjoy this world that you've made and uh, a drink with one another. Let's, uh, let us um, do that from a glad heart that you would have all the praise and the glory, our creator king. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.